Perhaps no story in Hollywood is as well-worn as the classic rescue operation. From Star Wars A New Hope, you remember when Luke and company go into the Death Star and they, they save Princess Leia, uh, to Black Hawk Down, to Frozen, when Princess Anna ascends the North Mountain to save her sister from herself. Uh, movie makers know what captivates audiences. When danger and certain doom awaits one of the protagonists, the situation is dire, rescue seems impossible, and yet somehow the other lead characters, well, they get up the gumption to enter into that peril to save their friend at great personal risk. Sometimes, like in the Indiana Jones movie, or movies, it succeeds. At other times, as in The Perfect Storm, it ends in tragedy. What is it about these movies uh, that they're picking up on that so resonates with us year after year after year? What deep longing or desire have directors noticed about the human condition that keeps us coming back for more? This morning, we turn to Colossians 1, verses 9 to 14, as we see the real-life greatest rescue operation of all time and how we should respond to it. So if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to turn there now. We're in our second week in the book of Colossians. Uh, so last week, we began with chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. We handed out a scripture journal. So Jake is over here. He has scripture journals. If you are interested in them, he's getting paid a lot of money to hand them out. So uh, you should raise your hand, and he will walk and bring it to you right now. He's very nice. I promise he's not scary. Um, last week, we began week one. Lord willing, we'll be in Colossians for about 13 weeks. Written around 60 AD in a Roman prison, the Apostle Paul was writing to a congregation that he himself had never been to, uh, but that Epaphras had founded in his preaching of the gospel. Uh, in verse 2 last week, we saw that grace and peace are not just available, but yours in Christ Jesus. And then uh, in the remainder of the verses, especially in 3 to 5, the Apostle Paul commended the Colossian Christians for their faith, hope, and love. He thanked God for their faith and hope and love. Uh, thus, we arrive at our passage this morning. We'll have three sections, and the main idea of our passage is simply this. Be filled with spirit-given wisdom to walk worthy of the Lord. Be filled with spirit-given wisdom to walk worthy of the Lord. So look with me at Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. 
Well, Paul's first point is found in verse 9, entitled Paul's Prayer. Uh, Last week, we saw Paul thanking God concerning the Colossian church, and here we see him interceding on behalf of them. You you see the content of his request in verse 9. Paul says that he's asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I think the NIV translation kind of brings out the sense of it really well. So the NIV says, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Paul is asking God that these Colossian Christians would be filled with the knowledge of God by means of the Spirit of God. It's Spirit-given wisdom and understanding. Uh, You see, the language of being filled throughout the New Testament is often used of believers being filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, So I think that the NIV is right to interpret Paul as addressing not just a kind of generic spiritual understanding with a a lowercase s, uh, but spirit with a capital S. That is, in filling believers with the knowledge of his will, Paul wants God to fill the Colossian Christians with the Spirit of God. Because the Spirit is the only way we come to know the will of God. Uh, We can't know God's will apart from the Spirit giving us insight and understanding. The book of Colossians is parallel to the book of Ephesians. Uh, That's why a number of our scripture readings this morning have been from Ephesians. There are lots of similarities between the two books. And in Paul's parallel prayer in Ephesians 1.17, Paul prays that God would grant you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. That's Ephesians 1.17. Paul prays that God would grant you the spirit, capital S, of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now you might say, Scott, I thought all Christians had the Holy Spirit. And of course that's true. But the New Testament also is very clear that believers can be filled all the more with God's Spirit, even as Mark prayed. Uh, Paul's point here in praying that God would cause these Colossian Christians to be filled is that God's Spirit would come to, to dominate them and rule them and influence them. This spiritual wisdom and understanding of God's will, uh, w- what does that mean? The, the will of God. Well, well, Paul isn't praying, it's really important, that the Colossians would come to understand God's secret will, or his will of decree. So in the Bible, there are two wills of God. The first will, the secret will, refers to his secret plan for everything that's going to happen. And you can't know it until it happens. So I know that it was God's will that it snow yesterday, because it did. I have no idea what God's will is for for next week until it happens. That's God's secret will, but that's not what Paul is referring to here when he says that he wants the believers filled with the knowledge of the will of God. Rather, Paul wants believers to have a knowledge of God's revealed will, his will of command. Uh, This refers to all that God has shown us in his word. I think this is really important because Paul isn't commending these Christians, to try to discern some hidden, mysterious, cryptic will of God. 
God, Paul is not saying, I hope you get your detective skills out to try to know the unknowable, to have revealed the secret. Paul is not saying, I want you to know God's particular plan for your life of what city you should move to, what job you should take, who you should marry, or anything like that. The point is that the Spirit is meant to lead them into a greater understanding and application of God's revealed will in his word. So one commentator writes, what Paul has in mind is not some particular or special direction for one's life, as we often use the phrase God's will, but a deep and abiding understanding of the revelation of Christ and all that he means for the universe and for the Colossians. Uh, So brothers and sisters, I just want to kind of remove the burden from you that when you face various decision points in your life, that somehow you need to try to discern this secret will of God by kind of weighing various signs or symbols or, or realities that, that you wish you had access to and God expects you to figure out, but you just don't know how to do it. Uh, that's, Paul is not saying that he wants them to realize what city they're to move to or what job or what education they're to take. I don't want you to think that if you take the wrong job or move to the wrong city or marry the wrong person, well, then you've just totally blown it. That's not the will of God that Paul's talking about. The will of God is that Paul is talking about here that he wants believers to know is the will of God revealed in God's word. So here's how Paul puts it in 1 Thessalonians 4. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Friends, if you want to know the will of God for your life, I can tell you. I mean, if you want to come to me after, I will tell you God's specific will for your specific life. It is your sanctification. And so God cares way less about what job you take or what city you move to or any particular decision point in your life, what circumstances to have. And God cares way more about how we conduct ourselves in those situations, whether or not in those circumstances we're pursuing and following Christ. That's God's will for your life, that the Holy Spirit would lead you to to know that will and apply it. Or you might say, Scott, what is the, what is the practical, though, kind of day-to-day effect? What is God trying to achieve in filling me with his spirit? What does it mean to be filled with the spirit of God in the knowledge of his will? Is the result dreams and signs and wonders? Is it speaking in tongues? What's the end result of being filled with God's spirit? We turn to our second point, found in the, just the first half of verse 10 entitled Prayer's Purpose, and and you see there, Paul says, I'm asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spirit-given wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Uh, This is further confirmation that Paul has indeed been referring to God's will of command. Paul's point is that he wants them to be filled with spirit-given knowledge so that they can live their lives in a godly way. Here we see that Christians should lead transformed lives. Now that we've been saved by Christ, God is our Father, God's Spirit dwells in us, our manner of life 
Well, it changes. Uh, we walk worthy of the Lord. Now, to be clear, this doesn't mean that we somehow earn our salvation. As if our walking well could deserve us a place in heaven. But the point is that when Jesus becomes your Lord, when you're saved by grace through faith in Christ, at that moment, God attaches his name to you. The God of the universe identifies with Dave DeBond and Margaret Wessel and Mel Butman. You've got his name, his logo on you. And so the point is that we are to conduct ourselves in accordance, in a way that is fitting to our master and Lord. I think we know this from, from day-to-day life as well. So this past summer, Ime Udoka was the head coach of the Celtics. He had led them to an NBA Finals trip last year, really well-respected by lots of players and coaches around the league. And then he was fired for conduct unbecoming of his position. He had an inappropriate relationship with someone in the organization. The Celtics said, look, for, for our name, your conduct, it's unbecoming. Uh, Your conduct is inconsistent with your status. And so now for us as believers that Jesus is Lord, you know, we want to live for him. Uh, We want his name to be great. And so we try to live in a way that is fully pleasing to him. Again, our walking uprightly doesn't earn us a a seat at God's table. Uh, For while our, our good works can never cause or effect our union with Christ, they can impact our communion with God, okay? So, so again, if, if you've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, Christian, God is now your father, and that's just not going to change. He's a good father. He doesn't lose his kids. You've been brought in, and he's not going to lose you. And as a father, now you and I can either please or displease him by our actions, even though our actions can't unadopt ourselves from his love, right? So if one of my kids, hypothetically, failed to clean their rooms, um, they don't cease to be my children, right? We don't kick them out of the house and say, I'm done with you, right? Allie's like, yes, praise be to God. No, that's, that's not what a good father does. Our disobedience doesn't remove us from God's family any more than our obedience put us in it. The point is that as children of God, we would walk in a manner worthy of our great calling and our great God and great Savior. And it's God's Spirit that gives us the understanding of God's will so that we can live this way. That's what Paul is praying for these Colossian Christians. And brothers and sisters, I I ask you, is this how You pray for other Christians. It's wonderful and right and appropriate to pray for yourself, to pray for your family. Uh, But let's also make it a habit to pray for other Christians just because they're Christians. Uh, Pray for other members of this church using the directory. Uh, If you're a member and you need one, I've got plenty. Pray for them. And and notice that Paul doesn't, well, I should put it this way. Notice what Paul prays for. It is good and right 
to pray for physical, material needs, right? Jesus models this in the Lord's Prayer when he says, he tells us to pray, Father, give us this day our daily bread. So don't stop praying for jobs and housing and physical healing and all the rest for yourself and for others. But brothers and sisters, don't only pray for those physical concerns. Here, Paul models what it looks like to pray with spiritual priorities. Uh, When you're praying for your spouse, don't just pray that he or she would have a good day. Uh, Pray that they would be filled with God's spirit and that he would lead them into a deeper knowledge of God's will. For other members of this church, pray that they would abound in faith and hope and love. Or when you pray for me or Dave or Mark, don't just pray that, that we would be healthy and the Lord would sustain us physically. Uh, pray that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Brothers and sisters, let me just encourage you to keep praying all the more for one another. Uh, if you're looking for, like, how do I pray? Just look at Paul's prayers in the New Testament. Pray that for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, yet, what does it mean? What does it really, like, kind of super practically look like to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? That's pretty vague. Paul, can you give us any specifics? Oh, I think he does. And that's, that's this, our third point, what we see in the second half of verse 10, all the way through the end of verse 14, entitled, The Way to Walk. And in these remaining verses, Paul is, is giving us the means by which we are to walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Paul gives us four concrete ways that the Spirit leads us to walk in God's will. We see four four ways. So first, there in the middle of verse 10, Paul states that we are to be bearing fruit in every good work. Bearing fruit in every good work. This might seem pretty basic to you, uh, but Christian, I just want you to notice that you can be fully pleasing to God as you bear fruit in every good work that God has called you to, whatever that work is. And therefore, to be fully pleasing to God, you don't have to remove yourself from your situation to live some other situation or context but rather we can be pleasing to the Lord right where we are. Sometimes the idea gets implicitly or explicitly stated that the way to, to really please God is you know, to become a pastor or missionary. Uh, but brothers and sisters, that's just not true. Be encouraged that in whatever life situation God has put you in, you can please God there. Uh, Whether in the Air Force, or as a homemaker, or a student, or an engineer, God has called you to bear fruit in every area of your life. In our relationships, and our careers, in our finances, in our families, in serving the poor, and in stewarding our time, with our sexuality and our emotions, our parenting and our neighboring, in all of life. Uh, Christian, God has called you to bear fruit for his glory, and you can be pleasing to the Lord there. And so, friends, let's, let's get to work, right? Um, don't be discouraged into thinking, you know, I'm, I'm fine doing my day job. 
But if I were really serving the Lord, well, I would, I would sell everything and move overseas. Maybe. But the truth is that we are all called to serve the Lord, even right where we are. Changing diapers, writing reports, working on Excel, getting to know our neighbors and friends. Uh, that's the first way. We walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. We bear fruit in every good work. The second idea is there at the end of verse 10. It states that we are to be increasing in the knowledge of God. So to be honest, when, I, when I was first studying the passage, I thought Paul was just kind of repeating himself from verse 9. Remember, he'd already said, yeah, I want you to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And now he's saying, I want you to be increasing in the knowledge of God. But I think the emphasis in verse 9 is that the Holy Spirit fills believers and he gives us the knowledge of God's will. Uh, here, I think the point is slightly different. That the Spirit fills believers, leading us to walk worthy of the Lord, which practically looks like increasing in the knowledge of God. And, and I, think, I think we, all, we, we get this, we, we understand this in, in other parts of life, but sometimes we can, we can not understand it when it comes to Christianity. Because in, in any real relationship, we want to know the other person, right? In marriage or in dating, in friendship, if you neglect getting to know the other person, it's not going to be a very good relationship. And so at the heart of Christianity is our relationship with God. You know, if salvation was all about getting a get-out-of-hell-free card, right? We're just trying to get out of judgment. We don't really need to know God. Like, what's kind of the, the minimum threshold that I need to cross to believe in Jesus to get out of hell? But friends, because Christianity is about us coming to know and enjoy God, well, yeah, we do want to increase in our knowledge of God. Because knowing him is the great end for which we have been created. At your right hand, O Lord, are pleasures forevermore. There is no greater object to our lives than knowing God. Because Christ has reconciled us to God, we want to go deeper in that knowledge of God. As Jesus prays in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So Christians, knowing God isn't a peripheral theme in scripture. It is central. In fact, that will be the best part about eternal life. What will make heaven so heavenly? That God is there and we will know him. Christian, do you make it your aim to grow in the knowledge of God? Uh, until that day, how are you growing in the knowledge of God? I think it's the same way that you grow in knowing any person. You pay attention to their word, right? Don't tell me I want to know my spouse if you won't listen and pay attention to their words. And so it is with God. If we are to grow in our knowledge of him, we must grow in our understanding and application of God's word. Because that's how he reveals himself. 1 Samuel 3.21 states, And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the 
word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, the whole reason God has given you his spirit so that you can walk in a manner pleasing of the Lord is so that you would know God. And it's this like really happy snowball effect where the more we know God, the more we want to walk worthy of the Lord. And then the more we're walking with God, the more we want to know him. It's this really happy snowball effect that Lord willing is growing over the years and decades of the Christian life. So friends, this means studying the Bible, reading books that dig deep into theology and the meaning of the scriptures. But we do need to be careful that we, when we approach the Bible, we, just, we don't just know about God. We're not learning to just know about him, right? Because I know a lot, probably more than I should, about Tom Brady. I know where he's from, I know where he went to school, know almost all of his records, I know his family situation, I know his personal trainer's name, but I don't know Tom Brady. I, I know about him. And so friends, when you approach the Bible in your morning devotions or when you're listening to the word preach, don't just approach it with an attitude of, of learning things about Christianity or God. When you come to the Bible, ask that God would reveal himself. Because it's precisely when we pay attention to our friend's words that we come to know him or her more, and that thus we can act in a way that is pleasing and honoring to them. And so it is with the Lord. We need God's spirit to guide us in our growing in the knowledge of God. The third way that Paul mentions that we walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, is found in verse 11. It's by being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience. Friends, these are encouraging words. Because make no mistake, you and I need to persevere to the end to be saved. Jesus says it, Ezekiel says it, Paul says it, Hebrews says it, Revelation says it. It's all over the Bible that you and I need to persevere to the end. And the Christian life is one of dying daily, taking up our crosses. We must do that until we either die or Jesus comes back. And so the question is, how are you going to make it? I mean, that's, that's a, a long time, right? Will you get saved at five years old? or 15 years old, or 55 years old, most people don't die right after they get saved. They have to persevere. And so Christian, how are you going to persevere in the Christian life? Well, it's by being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Brothers and sisters, this is what makes the gospel of the new covenant, what Jesus referred to at the Last Supper, so very good. In Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31, we get descriptions of the new covenant that God was going to make with his people. The Lord explicitly states that the reason he needed to make a new covenant was because the old covenant with God's old people, the nation of Israel, well, they had broken the covenant. They had, kept, they had continually walked in sin and rebellion. And so, if after our series in Malachi, you were thinking... You know, Scott, that was kind of discouraging. The Israelites had the law. They had Sinai. 
They had the temple, the crossing of the Red Sea, the plagues. I mean, God revealed his, his mercies and his judgment. He revealed his glory to them. And Israel, like after hundreds of years, they still walked in disobedience. Scott, I'm a goner. I, I must stand no chance if they couldn't endure to the end. How can I? Well, it's to solve precisely that problem that God says in Ezekiel 36, 27, and I in the new covenant will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. In short, to ensure that his people, that that you and I do endure to the end with all perseverance and patience, God has given us his Holy Spirit who strengthens us, who enables and empowers us. This means that we don't fight sin on our own. We don't try to live according to our own power because, brothers and sisters, we have no power. We're weak, but we rely upon his resources. The New Testament repeats this like dozens of times. Just to give two examples, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I, walk, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Or in Philippians 2 we read, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. Brothers and sisters, praise God that in the Christian life we are not left to our own devices. Because the greater the task requires greater power, right? I can pick up this music stand because I'm strong enough. It's not too difficult to task. But I can't pick up a car. I don't have the strength for that. There is no greater task, no more difficult task than putting sin to death, than living to righteousness, than persevering to the end. And so, brothers and sisters, it requires a great strength for a great task. It requires the power and might of God. So, Christian, how are you doing in your fight against sin? In your fight against covetousness? Oh, brothers and sisters, don't give up. The Lord is with you. Are you battling anger or impatience? The Lord will strengthen you. Are you waging war on lust and pornography? God's spirit is with you in the battle. When we are weary with the cost of following Christ, friends, let us pray that God's spirit would empower us and enable us to endure and to have strength in the fight against sin. Let's pray that we wouldn't give up uh, because that's, that's so much of the battle, isn't it? Satan just tries to grind us down. If his temptation doesn't work today, he'll be back tomorrow. And the day after that, and the day after that. Praise God that we are not strong enough. The Lord is. And he loves to fill us with his spirit so that we will have might to endure in walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. And so we come to the fourth and final way that Paul wants us to live a life fully pleasing to God. Look there at verse 12. Uh, the, the last two words of verse 11 almost certainly belong with the, the words of verse 12. Uh, so the Holy Spirit fills us with the knowledge of God's will so that we can live a life pleasing to God, which looks like, 
beginning the last two words of verse 11, with joy, giving thanks to the Father. Giving thanks, that's the last activity. And you might think, oh, Scott, this is, it's a little bit of a letdown. You're talking about like what it means to live the Christian life, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Why does Paul end on and give thanks? What, what's such a big deal about that? Don't get me wrong, we tell our kids to say please and thank you. Uh, being thankful is nice. But Paul highlights it here because of the way that gratitude is absolutely essential in the Christian life. It comes near the core, the center, about whether or not we understand Christianity and the gospel. It's kind of like the litmus test. I don't just mean gratitude in general, but I mean thanksgiving to God. Why is it such a big deal? Well, it's such a big deal because if we think that we are saved by our works and our actions, well, we don't really have a ton of gratitude for God. Uh, we, we wouldn't thank him for salvation. We would thank ourselves. We would kind of boast in our own abilities. If we're saved from hell by our own works, if we're saved by our own good deeds and walking uprightly before the Lord. But it is precisely because salvation is all of grace that our lives should be marked by profound thanksgiving to God for all that he's done. You know, when you thank someone, it's because they've done something for you. That's what Christianity is about, what God has done for us in the gospel. And so our response is gratitude and thanksgiving to God. It's gratitude that's especially marked with joy. That's why Paul fronts that little phrase for emphasis. It belongs with verse 12 with the thanksgiving because, you know, all true thanksgiving is joyful, right? I know we might say thank you to someone who, you know, holds the door open for us or, you know, does us some small favor. And it might be a little bit of a trite thank you. But I think the, the greater the act of service, the greater the joy. And so it's appropriate that the Holy Spirit would produce joyful thanksgiving in our lives as Christians because we have much to be happy about. Uh, like we've won the lottery 10 times over, 10,000 times over. Our wildest dreams and fantasies cannot even begin to hold a candle to the joys of eternity. You know, sure, in this life, we have trials and struggles. We really do. But brothers and sisters, they pale in comparison with the glory about to be revealed. So Christian, do you regularly give thanks to God for what he's done in your life? You know, sometimes the longer it's been since we've been reminded of God's saving grace, or perhaps since we've experienced it, the less thankful we can be tempted to be. But brothers and sisters, we don't graduate in the Christian life from giving thanks to God for what he's done for us. So if you're a Christian for however long you've been a Christian, the temptation is the longer it's been, right, to just kind of take it for granted. Oh, but brothers and sisters, let us be reminded of the grace of God, the salvation that should work in us thanksgiving and joy. Personally, I, I find one of the ways that kind of stirs up my thanksgiving and joy is by sharing the gospel with unbelievers. 
uh, there's something about evangelism and getting to tell others about the grace that's available that's like, oh yeah, this is amazing. Uh, let me encourage you to, to do that if you find uh, your own heart cold at times. Uh, what a blessing it is to sing songs like His Mercy is More and See the Destined Day of Rise. Uh, when the truths of the gospel seem cool to your heart and irrelevant, let us ask God to renew to us the joy of our salvation. And specifically, Paul mentions and concludes our passage with three actions for which we should be thankful for. Uh, this, this whole passage, verses 9 to 14, is actually one long run-on sentence in Greek. So it, it, it's broken up a little bit in the ESV to make it more, more digestible. It's all, it's all one sentence. But so look at the three things we're supposed to thank God for. First, in the middle of verse 12. We are to give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You see, by birth, we are not naturally qualified to inherit the glories of the new heavens and new earth. We are not naturally capable to enter into heaven because of our sin. We exclude ourselves. Heaven and God is perfectly holy and righteous and pure and loving, and we are not. And yet, praise be to God, he has done what only he could do. He has qualified us. I think, I think we know what this is like. If you've ever tried to get into to a location or, or an event or something that you're, you're not really supposed to be allowed there. Uh, so last year, I, I went to a pastor's conference with 12,000 people, and it was great. And I, I had some, some good friends in the, the VIP section up front, where you can like actually see the preacher in person and not just on this massive jumbotron, right? And so during one of the breaks, I, I tried to kind of sneak up there, and I'm like, this is a pastor's conference, like, there's not going to be security, you know, like, this will be a piece of cake. And so I showed up, and there's this kind of security guard standing there. And I tried to explain the situation. I'm a lowly church planter, just here to hear the word preached. And I got stonewalled. I mean, he didn't give an inch. Turn me away. I start walking back to my seat in defeat. And my, my phone rings. And it's my buddies. They say, hey, hey where, where are you? We thought you were coming to the front. Explain my, the situation. They say, meet us there in one minute. So I went back up. Security guard, I'm sure, giving me the stink eye. And this time, my friend, with his special blue wristband, I get in. I walk in. I was not qualified on my own. I required someone who was qualified to bring me in. And brothers and sisters, this is the gospel. That we were excluded from heaven because of our sin. We could not qualify ourselves. And yet God in his grace makes us sufficient. He makes it so that we can stand by imputing to us the righteousness of Christ. To use a different analogy, imagine there's this massive inheritance about to be divided up, uh, some mega billionaire from Concord, perhaps. It's all on the news. The estate is being apportioned out. Uh, but you and I, as much as we want to get in on that inheritance, right, we're, we're not qualified. We're just outsiders. We have no claim on it. But now imagine that the father of that family 
in his grace and in his love, just before the inheritance is apportioned, adopts you, brings you in. So that now the inheritance that you had no right to, well, it's yours. You get brought in. Friends, wouldn't we be overwhelmed with thanksgiving and joy? Beloved, that's the experience of the Christian. Because that's what God the Father has done for us. He has qualified us for the inheritance with the saints in light. The second thing is found in verse 13. God has, second thing we're to thank God for is that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Uh, You see, this is why we were unqualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Because we weren't in light, we were in the darkness. The domain of darkness refers to the kingdom and rule of Satan. Throughout the book of Colossians, we'll see how, how Paul addresses the spiritual forces and beings of the world and how the Christians relate to it. Uh, but the first thing to know is that we are naturally born as citizens of the domain of darkness. Paul says in Ephesians 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Friends, not only do we willfully commit treason against God, sin against him, but all of us have aligned ourselves with Satan's mutinous kingdom. And so what do we need? We need rescue. That that word deliver, deliverance, literally, it's rescue. Uh, Just as the Lord saved the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, so too we need to be delivered from slavery to the prince of darkness. And when God does this deliverance and rescue, it's not like the rescue of Captain Phillips. You remember the the Navy SEAL snipers, they were safely on the boat, they take out the bad guys, and Captain Phillips goes free. No, it's more like saving Private Ryan, where the Lord Jesus didn't stand far off, to accomplish our rescue, and it came at the cost of his own life. He didn't stand in the light and beckon us to free ourselves from the darkness. Rather, Jesus entered our darkness, even the darkness of death, so that as he too rose from the grave to enter into the light of life, we too could be freed from the domain of darkness. So friends, make no mistake. Christianity is only for the weak. If you're a Christian, it's because you confess, I am so weak, I'm in need of rescue. It is not for those who think they can rescue themselves. Yet praise be to God, he's rescued us from the domain of darkness, and third, he has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That is, God didn't leave us homeless. Sin and Satan was our dominion and authority. It's where we resided. And in rescuing us, God didn't say, be free, now go have a good life, figure it out on your own. He said, you're free, now come with me. You're part of the family now. And so, beloved, Jesus Christ becomes our Savior and our King. To say that we have redemption simply refers to the the price paid to buy back a a captive or a prisoner from bondage. And that redemption is nothing less than what we read this morning from Ephesians 1-7. In him we have redemption through his blood. 
the forgiveness of our trespasses. You see, it was the guilt of our sin and trespasses that held us in chains. We were enslaved as indebted orcs of Mordor. And the Lord Jesus, the fair and high king, has given his life to pay our debt and to bring us to his kingdom. Though our sins are many, his mercy is more. He gave his life not to cover some of your sins, but all of them. And so, brothers and sisters, friends, notice as we conclude how the triune God is at work in your salvation. Jesus lived the perfect life. Jesus went to the cross and died on the cross for our sins, bearing the punishment that we deserve. And then he rose again to newness of life so that he offers salvation and redemption and forgiveness of sins, not on the basis of how good you are at walking worthy of the Lord, but on the basis of his work, that by faith you can be saved. Of course, the Father has planned and commenced this great rescue operation. He has adopted us into his family and made us heirs. And the Spirit is the one who empowers you to live in a manner worthy of this great salvation. Christian, do you notice how completely on the sidelines we are when salvation is accomplished? Like in verses 12 to 14, what do we do? Nothing. God qualifies, God transfers, God delivers, and we get inheritance like kingdom, redemption, and forgiveness. And so, brothers and sisters, the proper response is thanksgiving with joy. May it be so in all our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We praise you with joy and gladness because you have done what we could not do for ourselves. You have secured our redemption through the blood of your son. And we do pray, Father, that you would fill us with your spirit, that we can know your will and walk in it for the glory of our great Savior and King, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, friends, we'll conclude now.